You're listening to Hey, welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Mark Renier. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today for one of our author interviews. On this episode, we're talking to Sarah Suk, the author of Made in Korea, a new YA rom-com novel coming out on May 18th. Yeah, we had a really good time talking with Sarah. Uh, We talked to her about her journey to becoming published and also uh, Neopets, (laughs) as well as uh, the Korean diaspora and our different experiences. So I hope you all enjoy our talk. Yeah. uh, So without further ado, uh, let's get to our interview with Sarah. Enjoy. So we're here with Sarah Suk, the author of Made in Korea. I'm so excited to have her on. Ever since I heard about her book deal back in like 2019, I've just had Made in Korea put on like my Goodreads list. So I'm so excited to have her on the show. Uh, thank you, Sarah, for um, taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited. This is our second Asian Canadian in a row. As a um, kind of Asian Canadian myself, I am very excited for the Asian Canadian presentation on this podcast. Oh, what do you mean kind of Asian Canadian? <laughs> <laughs> We've talked, so I claim, so I am, a, I'm, I am a Canadian citizen. I was born in Toronto, um, oh, but wow. I moved okay. to the States when I was one. So culturally, I am American, mm. but I still have my Canadian nationality and my passport. So I still claim Canada, although Rira says that's not allowed. I mean, if the passport says it, you know, you can I mean, exactly, I know, right? like your passport it. says it. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had a Korean passport until I was like 21. Mm, so I right. totally understand. But I just like to tease Marvin about it. It's not just me, it's everyone I tell this story to. Well, you know what? I accept. I accept your yeah. welcome in Canada whenever you cross the border, whenever you're able to. <laughs> you got validation from an actual Canadian. <laughs> Okay, so Made in Korea is your debut novel, right? Yes, yes, my debut first ever novel. So, how did like how did that happen? Like were you were you always a writer and um like what was your road to publication like? I think I read that you studied creative writing in college. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, a little bit. I actually got rejected from the creative writing major in my, oh, no. in my school. <laughs> So I did not major in creative writing. I majored in English literature and then I minored in creative writing instead. And the minor is just kind of like open to all. Um, But I'll backtrack for a second and kind of go back to childhood. So I would say that I was always a writer. I think ever since I was a kid, I loved reading books and writing stories. Uh, My first memory of writing any kind of story was just taking books that I loved and like rewriting it like word for word, but just changing details. So if I like wanted the main character to be a girl instead, I would just change that and like change their name and just like keep on writing it. I think I would get tired after like the first chapter. Obviously, I didn't like transcribe (laughs) entire novels as a child. But 
I loved writing. I love short stories and um, any other kind of various length of story. And when I was a kid, I loved this site called Neopets. I don't know if either of you. Oh my played. god, Neopets! Wow, <laughs> that, that like, like throws me thing. back. <laughs> no, no, like that's like a, that's like the um, like all of my classmates were into Neopets, but like I wasn't really allowed to go on the internet all that much mm. when it was popular. So it was mm. like everybody everybody's friends with each other except me because I don't have like so it's kind of like kids who play Minecraft like you need to play Minecraft in school in order to be like in a clique and if you don't play Minecraft you're kind of left out so it's kind of like that Neopets was the Minecraft of our era yes of the generation of the generation Neopets was really defining for me um, I guess it's like the best way I can describe it it's just like a virtual pet site so you have all these like virtual pets, fictional created pets that are like, like, uh, rabbits mixed with like dragons. I don't, I don't even know <laughs> I, how to explain I think it. I, did. I think for my generation, cause I'm a little bit older than the both of you, I imagine, uh, for mm. us, it was Gumbound. I don't know if you've heard oh, of Oh, no, Gumbound. I don't. I've never no, heard I've of never it. Heard of it. It's like, have you guys ever played Worms? Like where yeah. the worms shoot each other with bazookas and stuff? <laughs> yeah. No, it's I don't know. that, but like with the anime wrapping. And like the first like multiplayer version of that. So a lot of my friends were on that. They met their, they met other friends through that. That's what that reminds me of. But I am totally dating myself. But um, <laughs> solidarity to everyone who's listening who knows what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. Every generation has one. So for me, it was Neopets. And um, Neopets had this thing called the Neopian Times. It was like this newspaper <laughs> for Neopets. And then I would write um, write stories for them. So I would like write these short stories about my Neopets getting into like hijinks and whatever. And then I would submit it. And then it, uh, after a couple tries, they actually published one. And then I just like kept on submitting these Neopets short stories for their fiction section. And I was like a kid and I was just like writing these stories. And then I would do like longer series too, where the Neopets would get up to like K-drama type situations, or, you <laughs> oh know, like God. lose their memory <laughs> and, then, and then get adopted by like a new owner, but they knew in their heart that like it wasn't right. Anyway, it was just like this whole thing. Um, and then after that, in high school, I discovered fan fiction. So I went deep into that, spent a lot of time like writing fan fiction. What was your, uh, what was your fan fiction like? Area? What was your um, fandom? <clears throat> my God. Well, I don't know if it's the fandom, but at the time, I loved this show on Nickelodeon called Zoe 101. <laughs> so I would like write about uh, these kids going to boarding school together. And then um, this is also maybe like a little weird now, but I used to also write like K-pop fan fiction. Oh, no, that's not that's not weird at all. Like, that's still that's still <laughs> is that like still, is that still. Yeah, something? like there's a there's a site dedicated to it, like oh, Asianfanfics.com. Oh, and, I did not know. And like Tumblr is very ripe with it. So, yeah, it's really? very much strong and alive, if not stronger. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's really thriving. Um, but yeah, I used to write a lot of K-pop fan fiction. It was uh, nothing, nothing super weird or anything. It was just like my favorite members, but in high school situations and kind of like playing around with that. So I guess it would be the equivalent of, I guess, like YA contemporary scenarios. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I spent a lot of time writing fan fiction and then I went off to university and as I mentioned, I majored in English literature and minored in creative writing. So there I learned um, all these kind of different styles of writing that I hadn't really done a lot of before, like nonfiction and songwriting and graphic novels and all these different kinds, which was super fun and reading across all different 
uh, genres as well was really interesting. Um, and then in my last semester of school, I was taking a writing for children's class. And the project was to like outline a, a novel, either like middle grade or young adult or anything for kids. So I started outlining a book. And I think at that time, throughout all of this, like all those years of writing for Neopets and fan fiction and all these things, I think I always knew when I grew up, like I'm going to be a writer. And that was like always something that I just held on to ever since I was a kid. I think it was maybe even like fourth grade, we had to do a project on like how to do something. We had to make like a how-to manual. And my manual was like how to be an author. It's like, I don't know what it meant to be an author. I think my entire how-to guide was like write a book and then edit it. Um, and so I, I think that was just something I've always wanted to do. So by the time this project came around in my last semester of university, I was like, wow, this is like totally up my alley. This is what I want to do. I think at that point, I already had a sense that I wanted to write uh, middle grade and young adult. I think that age group really spoke to me and those books really spoke to me growing up and even in university. So I felt like this was a perfect project to kind of finish off my university chapter. So I started drafting a middle grade fantasy in that class. Um, and then after I graduated university, I just kept on working on that story while I had like many other jobs. Uh, so I guess, I guess you would call it, I learned this term like not too long ago, but it's called like the gig economy where you don't really have just like one full-time job, but you kind of bounce from like one contract job to another. So post-school for me, like that was kind of what I settled into, like bouncing between different jobs and then continuing to write. And then during that time, I finished this middle grade fantasy and edited it a ton, edited it. That's like such a difficult thing for me to say, <laughs> edited it a ton uh, and then got a lot of people to read it, including like beta readers and a mentor figure that I had at the time. Um, and then I finally started querying and it was very rough. I think it was very rough to, to try to get a literary agent. Um, I got a lot of rejections and a lot of people who are interested, but then kind of like trailed off into rejections. And then I kind of decided, I think in after like several months, I was like, you know what? I think this is, I'm going to shelve it for now and like work on something else. Um, but after I shelved it, like mentally shelved it in my mind, an agent reached out. I think this was like seven months after, after I first started querying. And she said, um, I love this book. Like, can I see the rest of it? So I sent her the rest of it. And then I think a week later, she offered representation. Wow. And that was, yeah, that was a very cool feeling because in my mind, I had already kind of let it go in a sense and felt like, oh, okay, like this isn't the one, um, you know, and the query trenches is is really, is a really rough place where you don't know if anybody wants to read your work or like, is this even good? Like I spent such a long time on it, but like, will anything come out of it? And I think I had reached a point of peace almost where I was like, even if this is not the book that gets me an agent, it was such an important book for me to learn like how to write a book. And it connected me to so many people in the community that I already felt so grateful for it. Um, but then to get an offer was kind of like an extra gift at the end that the book gave me almost. So that was that was really such a pleasant surprise. And I'm always very thankful whenever I think about that story. Um, so that book didn't end up selling. Um, but kind of in that time period where 
that middle grade fantasy was on submission, I started writing Made in Korea, which did sell and is now my debut novel. Wow. Can That's I just amazing. say that your origin story as a writer with Neopets is like <laughs> the best? <laughs> like, I think that's like the most interesting origin story I've heard on this mm. show. Um, I also heard that you're part of the Kim Chingus. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like, did you guys yeah. like, I think, did you guys meet before um, all of you guys debuted and just kind of like spent time sending drafts to each other? Yes. So the Kim Chingus is the name of my, um, my critique partner group, uh, me and four other Korean kidlit authors. Um, we actually met because we were, we were in this program called Author Mentor Match, uh, which is like a mentorship program. So non-agented writers can apply with their manuscripts and then agented or published writers will read it for you, offer feedback, kind of walk with you through the whole querying process. Um, so we all entered that program in different years. So we were all kind of like in different rounds of that. Um, but then one of the one of the girls, her name is Susan, she reached out to me and she was like, hey, like we are going to just like have a Twitter group chat for um, the Korean writers who are part of AMM. Like, do you want to be part of it? And I was like, OK, sounds good. So then I jumped into that group and that's where I met like Susan and Jessica and Gracie and Grace, who are who are the the other members of my close friends. Um, and from there, at that point, I think Jessica had just signed with her agent and the rest of us were non age like no agent, no book deal or anything. Uh, and then following that, we all started our journeys. We all started. Yeah, you all got agents. signed. You yeah. all either <laughs> came out with books or um, are planning to release them this year. I know yeah. that Susan Lee has her book coming out uh, pretty soon. Yes, 2022. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty it's pretty amazing how like you you guys like learned from each other and mm -hmm. now you're like. I don't know. Now I guess you're famous. <laughs> I don't know about famous. But... Yeah, I think you guys are famous. Famous as a critique group. Oh, yeah. I, I feel very, very, very lucky whenever I kind of think about um, that invitation that was just like, hey, like, do you want to just be part of this group? I found so much comfort and solidarity and wisdom from this group. And it's just such a safe space in an industry that feels so tumultuous all the time. So I feel very grateful. And also there, all of them are such incredible and talented writers that reading their work, I feel, and them giving me feedback has definitely made me a stronger writer too. So I think, you know, for this group, this these critique partners and other critique partners that I have as well, like in Vancouver where I live, I'm just so grateful for them because... I definitely don't think I would be where I am without them. Yeah, that's amazing. I think, you know, one of the cool things that I've learned through being a part of this podcast is just how how tightly knit the Asian, I guess you can call it diaspora writers, like community is, you know, online on Twitter with each other and how supportive they are of each other. And, you know, recently there's been a lot of, let's say, action going on in the Twitter sphere regarding Asian American representation. and as an Asian Canadian, I feel like, you know, I say our, I'm going to claim our, our culture, you know, <laughs> we're so closely tied to American culture, right? Because there's so many parallels, but you mm -hmm. know, there's also, 
differences. And it's really cool to see, you know, Asian Canadian writers also come out and put out work and tell those stories as well. Like, what are your thoughts about representation as an Asian Canadian? Hmm, uh, representation as an Asian Canadian specifically. I think that's interesting. Um, I think that's an interesting question because there are so many different ways that I could talk about this. I'm just trying to kind of gather my thoughts around how I want to tackle that. I think, um, I think with Canadians, at least speaking for myself, so everything I say, I'll just be speaking for myself and obviously not all <laughs> Canadians and not we're, all we're Asian not a Canadians. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but just for myself, I think it's interesting because I kind of feel the sense of like Canada is very different than America. Like it's a very different country with different history and different context. Um, but at the same time, there is a lot of overlap. Like we are North American. And um, when I look at a lot of Asian American stories, I identify very strongly with it because I feel like that's also a lot of my story. There's a lot of parallel and kind of crossover. Um, I will say, I don't know if Americans feel the same way when they hear Asian Canadian. I don't know if they're like, oh, I identified with like Asian Canadian the same way that I identify with Asian American stories, because I think when I hear American, I think like North America a lot. Um, whereas people, I think when they hear Canadian, they just hear like Canada um, and that feels separate. I don't know. As Americans, it's, like, does that ring true? I mean, I think it's a problem with Americans in general thinking that we're the center of the universe. Mm. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think there's also the fact that uh, racism and just like uh, multiculturalism is discussed differently uh, in Canada and in America. Um, from what I've heard, I'm not sure if this is true now, but uh, Canada loves to um, to boast that they're, you know, multicultural, that racism doesn't quite exist. Like, look at how, mm -hmm. like, accepting we are. Whereas, like, uh, in America, I think race is, like, discussed quite a lot. Um, so I'm not sure if, um, I guess, like, racism is talked about as much or at mm -hmm. least is visible in in the conversation as much as it is in America. Right, right. I think that's a great point. And I think growing up, I definitely heard a lot of that rhetoric around like Canada is very multicultural and like racism doesn't really like exist here. Um, but I think these days more so like in this in this generation, I think that conversation is really changing. And I think uh, a lot more people are speaking up about racism in Canada and what it looks what, what it looks like specifically here. And I think that, you know, to be very frank, I think a lot of people have been speaking about it for a really long time. Like, I don't want to discredit people in the past and in our history that have been fighting for um, have been fighting for equality and rights here for a really long time. And I think it's often brushed under the rug or like oh Canadians are so nice and like Canada is just like a really nice place and like oh look at least we're not like those Americans over there am I right I think a lot of the work that people have done in the past is finally getting louder and more universal across the country uh probably for many reasons but I think especially in the past several years of more global racism conversations coming up and I think as a Canadian and as an Asian Canadian I feel really happy to see that conversation becoming more of a daily conversation here as well so we can see what racism looks like in our country and in our cities like every every province in Canada is very very different so even that like it will be very different the way we talk about racism in like Vancouver or Toronto versus like 
um, non-major cities in Canada. So I think, you know, it's just like, it exists here. It really does. And, you know, even within British Columbia, like I went north like a couple hours into Kelowna with my parents once and we were at a farmer's market and this woman, she was like running a stall. Uh, she's like, this white woman said, um, wow, it's like all of China's at this farmer's market today. Oh and then me and my parents were like, what? <laughs> we're like, and there was like, literally, I look around, there's like literally like two other Asian people like walking around this farmer's market. And my dad was like, we're Korean. And this woman was like, what's the difference? And I just think about like, man, like, you know, we think of Canada as like a super multicultural and so on, but we do, we have to consider like not every single place in Canada is multicultural. And even those major cities that are, it is ex- like racism exists and it's a real thing. And we've seen that so starkly in this past couple of years, especially um, with all the media attention on it. So, you know, I think that it's important that Asian Canadians and Canadians in general are part of this conversation. And I think also here, um, a big part of our history and what we learn about is like indigenous rights as well and the racism against indigenous people. Uh, And I do hope that that is also a larger part of our conversation, too. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. People forget that Canada also committed genocide. So, (laughs) yeah, it also started as a colony just like us. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, just like us. Uh, People people do not get taught history um, that well in the classrooms, very Mm -hmm. watered down. For sure, Um, for sure. Yeah, so I just want to, like, give you a chance to um, describe what Made in Korea is to our listeners who haven't read it yet. Uh, Yeah, let's talk about the book. It's it's been 20 minutes. (laughs) Let's talk about the book that we're here to talk about. (laughs) Uh, so this, so Made in Korea comes out on May 18th. So hopefully uh, by the time this podcast comes out, it's already in your local bookstores. But if not, pre-order because that really helps with um, getting the book out there to, um, to other readers. Uh, yes, I appreciate all pre-orders. Um, so Made in Korea is a young adult rom-com about two teens that sell Korean beauty products at school. And they go head to head to outsell each other and maybe, maybe, I don't know, fall in love along the way. We'll see. You have to read the book. I mean, obviously. Um, So that's what the book is about. The main characters are Valerie Kwan, a really kind of savvy young business lady who knows what she wants. And Wes Jung, the new kid in school who is raising tuition money for his music school dream that his parents don't support. So the business that uh, Wes and Valerie compete in, it's Korean beauty products um, and also like K-pop related merch, but mostly uh, K-beauty. My question is, like, where did you get this idea of of kids selling uh, Korean beauty products specifically? Also, like, this is the first time I've heard of students running their own businesses in high oh. schools. I'm not just, I'm not sure if like that is a thing that... Uh, like a lot of schools do nowadays, because it's been a while since I've been in high school. But yeah, like, can you tell us like, why you chose K-Beauty to be the business that uh, your characters competed? And how do you came up with the idea of, uh, of having competitors in in school? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think with K-Beauty, man, I don't even really know how that originated. I think I had this thought one day, that I really want to write about teens selling Korean beauty products at school. And at first, it kind of came to me as like this whole 
underground market where kids are like secretly selling these things and like in band class they would like hide things in their like tuba and like pull it out <laughs> and you know that didn't really make it into the make it into the story um but I don't know I think I was just really intrigued by the whole KBD wave and all these people kind of clamoring for these products that were so high in demand and that was really compelling to me and kind of seeing like the 10 step skincare routines and all these different ways that that K-beauty can be marketed and used, I think was really intriguing to me. Um, I think another aspect for me too is like, I think K-beauty is so fun, but I actually don't use any of the products myself or or can't, I guess, because I have uh, eczema. So it's a skin condition that I have very sensitive skin. So I can only really use what the dermatologist gives me. So it was kind of my way to explore K-beauty in a way without having to put my skin through any unnecessary, unnecessary recovery time. So that was really fun for me. It felt like I could like try out different products by writing about it and kind of explore that world in that way. So I would say that that's where a lot of the K-beauty inspiration came from, just my own interests and intrigues and seeing it kind of take over social media. Uh, as for the competitor and business aspect, um, I think teens are incredibly smart and savvy and especially these days have so much tools to run their own business. And like, you know, they're all like basically marketing geniuses by the time of like out of high school. So I felt like with social media as such a rise in these days, which I didn't have when I was in high school, um, I wanted to introduce that element to Valerie and Wes's story. Um, and kind of give them space to explore their entrepreneurship and their creativity and their innovativeness in that way. I don't know if schools actually let students run their own businesses these days or like if I that's mean, something that any school do. You made it believable in the book. I was like, I could totally see this as like an extracurricular activity. I mean, yeah, I think if they do, I think it could be a really fun project even just for like a short term thing. Like, I think it'd be really fun to see what students come up with. So yeah, it was just really fun to write about, at least. Okay, so as a Korean diasporan, I have to ask this question because yes. I have a lot of thoughts about it, but I really want to hear your thoughts. Uh, so over the past decade, uh, there's been an explosion in like popularity with Korean pop culture and all things Korean beauty in the West. And uh, for a lot of Korean diasporans, or at least the ones that I've spoken uh, to about this topic... It's just kind of been a weird experience to see what uh, what was like once othered and like foreign to Westerners is now considered cool. And um, I just want to hear your thoughts on like the K boom and um, what we may have been made fun of for now being like the new it thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I have a lot of feelings about that too a lot of which I have not identified (laughs) a lot of which are just kind of like murky feelings underneath the surface that's like I know I feel a way about that but um, I don't totally know how to describe it yet but the ways that I do know how to describe it I'll share a little bit about Uh, I think it is a little twofold for me so on one hand I'm really happy about it I think it's awesome I think it's great to see people appreciate Korean culture and enjoy K-pop and K-dramas and K-beauty and all these things, Uh, especially K-pop, which is something that I've loved for a really long time that was not understood by a lot of my peers at the time. 
So, you know, I remember being so excited about like Korean variety shows, like these TV shows were my favorite K-pop stars would show up and I would like download them somehow. I don't even remember how I did it, but I think it was like LimeWire or something. I don't yeah, know. it was probably LimeWire or like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I would like... I would have my the computer fab one family computer on like overnight because it would take like 24 hours to download <laughs> one episode. And then the next day I would like watch it. And then, you know, I was part of all these K-pop forums and like, you know, because I speak Korean, I would like write translations for these shows and like share them with oh people. And but then when I sh- would try to share it with like my friends at school. It got a little harder because it was like, what is this? And like, we don't really get it. Like, we don't like it. This is weird. Like, these shows are so like, they're not funny where I'd be like cracking up in the corner. So I think, you know, it's really nice to see it kind of reach a more global audience and to see it, honestly, I think get the recognition that I think it deserves. And that has been really cool to see. And it's also, you know, it's nice not to have to explain myself um as much in a way like I don't need to explain like what Korea is or where Korea is and like how come you're like not North Korea and like what does that look what does that mean so it's nice to to not have to kind of navigate that as much as when I was a a kid um on the other hand (laughs) on the other hand hand, and I think this is where it gets a little complicated is that it does feel it does feel a little bit like I guess the best way that I can put it it's like when for me I've struggled so much with my Korean identity and feeling um at peace with it and even enjoying parts of it and I think that that was kind of like an up and down journey for me throughout my life and it's strange to see people have such easy access to this thing that was such a struggle for me and I think that's that's probably the kind of difficult thing about it it's like so easily accessible now that people feel almost like like oh like I'm basically Korean because I love k-pop and that I think really rubs me the wrong way because it's like "Mm, but that's not that's not the same (laughs) like and I think that's like I think you know I love the appreciation and the love for Korean culture like I'm totally here for it but there are some things like you know things like that that I do feel uncomfortable with and that I feel like it it almost I don't know it's like a strange boiling down of our culture and our histories and our families and the things that really make us Korean into just this like entertainment avenue um, and I do this feel the sense of like Korean culture is not just all entertainment and it's not just all k-pop and k-dramas and k-beauty and all these like all these things and I don't begrudge anybody for enjoying the entertainment purposes of it because it it is entertainment. It is what it is. Um, But I also feel like it's a lot more complex than that. And it's weird. I feel like a lot of us Korean people, we have this hesitancy to join in on the fun of it because we know that it hasn't always been fun. And I think that that's okay to recognize that. And it's okay to kind of like take a moment to feel the complexities of it. And I think it will always feel complicated. I think it will always be difficult for me to like put into words why exactly it's like, why exactly do I feel this like hesitancy about it still? Um, And I'm sure, you know, many people have articulated it in interviews and podcasts and essays. But the best way that I can really say it for myself is 
that it feels like an oversimplification of very complicated things in my life. Yeah, yeah, I definitely get that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think there's like a lot of stereotypes that are attached to to like the K-pop and uh, K-beauty culture that's like on the rise right now. But I'm really glad that you put K-beauty into this book. And, you know, like, it's amazing to me that like non-Korean readers, non-Asian readers will be able to like get it like right away. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, like K-beauty. That's like a thing that's really popular. And um, of course, it's going to have like a really good business that there would be an audience for it. So it's like nice that there is like less of a hurdle for, mm-hmm. for like the non-Asian readers out there who will pick up your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for sure I feel I feel glad for that as well. And I think I guess just to kind of add on like a final thought to the whole Korean wave and the Hallyu wave um, conversation. I think there is also another conversation around like, well, what if that wave passes? And like, what if like Koreans aren't like, quote unquote, like cool anymore? No one wants our stories anymore. No one wants to hear from us anymore. And I, you know, I thought about that a lot too and I think you know while I'm you know obviously still navigating a lot of like complicated feelings about the rise of Korean culture in our western world but I think now I've arrived at a place where I feel like I love being Korean and like for me being Korean is such a joy and you know if I if I died and had to choose to be born again I would be born again Korean like a hundred times over like that's just something that I will always feel proud of and no matter where the wave is whether it's like really really high and everybody wants to hear our stories or it's really like low tide and nobody cares about us anymore well I I, I think you know I, I care about us I care about us and other Koreans care about us and I hope that other people will continue to care um, not just because of the entertainment, but because we're real people and with stories to share. Um, so I think at the end of the day, you know, I think a lot about like, what do other people think about Korean culture? But I think I always kind of come back to like, what do I think about it? And I think I'm very proud to be Korean. So regardless of all the outside things, whether people recognize this book and K-beauty and everything as a good thing or or a cool thing or whatever, like, or a non-important thing. I think at the end of the day, it matters to me. And that's why it matters. So like, we were talking about how, um, you know, we like, we Koreans have stories. And, you know, like, um, we hope that people won't get tired of us, because, you know, there's so many stories to tell. And what I found like, really refreshing about your book is just the sheer number of Koreans in this novel. There are just so many Koreans in this book, you guys. Uh, And they all have different uh, diaspora experiences. Like Wes is a third culture kid, Mm -hmm. uh, someone who is raised outside the culture of their parents' nationality, and he moved around a lot. And then you have Pauline, who's a mixed-race Irish-Korean-American who is uh, just starting to get in touch with her roots because of her father. So um, how did you go about developing these Korean characters who may have a very different diaspora experience from yours? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am so glad that you picked up on that. I'm always very, very glad when people notice that because that was such an intentional detail that I chose to put in the book. Um, I think when I said about writing Made in Korea, I knew that I wanted it to have like a all Korean diaspora main cast. And I wanted the book to be very unapologetically Korean. 
Um, and having all the characters kind of have different backgrounds and different diaspora experiences was important for me to show because it's just true about life. That's just true. No one has the same story. Um, so I think with Wes and the third culture kid, I'm not a third culture kid myself. I was born and raised in Vancouver. So my story is more similar to Valerie's in that sense. But for Wes, I had a lot of friends that were third culture kids. So kids that grew up in foreign countries or moved around a lot and didn't really know how to answer the question like, where is home? Like, I don't really know how to answer that question. So I had a lot of peers and close friends like that. Um, so I actually interviewed a friend who is a third culture kid and she helped me a lot. And she actually shared a lot of her personal stories and pulled out this like BuzzFeed article too about like things you do when you're a third culture kid, which was interesting because it's this huge community of people. But I don't think a lot of people, myself included, knew even the term third culture kid until much later. So a lot of research was done for sure. Um, but I think also kind of even with Pauline, um, she, I think, embodied still a lot of my own thoughts, even though I'm not half Korean. Um, she still embodied a lot of my thoughts around like, it's never too late to connect with Korean culture. Like it's never too late to connect with your roots and it's never too late to want that. So it's okay. Like if you haven't wanted it for a long time or it's okay if that wasn't interesting to you for a long time, but if one day you wake up and you decide like, you know what, this is important to me, then, you know, it's important to you and that's part of you and that's part of your story and your family. So I think, you know, there are little pieces of things that I either wanted to say or things that I personally experienced in each of their stories, though they are all collectively quite different. Yeah, even though they're uh, collectively different, I like the message that, um, you know, like even though they're all from this different uh, diaspora experience, uh, they're all Korean. Like there isn't like a term for I think for a lot of diaspora kids, there's the question of like, am I Asian enough? Like, mm -hmm. am I Korean enough? And the th and the truth is, like, you you are Korean. Like, you don't have to do uh, like extra effort. Like, you don't have to speak the language fluently. You don't have to live in Korea to be Korean. Like, um, I think like I think it's like really interesting because like in Korea, like you don't have to think about being Korean. You just mm. are Korean. But then for everybody else who lives outside of Korea and Asia, uh, there's always like um, there's always like this urge to prove your Koreanness and Asianness. And I could definitely see that in your characters, uh, especially in the conversation between Wes and Valerie, because mm. they have a conversation about like. Um, where do we belong um, with Valerie, who is Korean American, and I related to her more because I'm also Korean American, uh, just like the idea of like, I don't really fit in in America. I'm, I'm always going to be seen as the other. But if I go to Korea, I feel even more othered because mm -hmm. it really feels like I don't belong in Korea. Like immediately people know that I'm I'm not a Korean national just from like the way I speak and what I look like. So I definitely could relate to that. And I'm really glad that you were able to um, show like a wide spectrum of Koreanness in, in your book. Mm -hmm. um, just moving forward, I really liked Valerie's family relationship with all of her, um, like especially with her bond 
with her halmoni, her grandmother. Uh, uh-huh. I just want to ask. Uh, this might be like too personal of a question, so uh, feel free to to say no. But uh, were any of Valerie's relationships with her family based on your personal relationships with your family? Hmm. Um. I think with Valerie's family, uh, I would say that no one relationship is like a direct mirror of any relationship in my family. Like. Valerie and her mom is not exactly like me and my mom and like Valerie and her older sister is like quite different than me and my older sister. Um, oh, so and, you're the magnet. Oh, yeah. I have an family. older sister and an older brother and I'm like quite a bit younger. They're eight years and six years older than me, respectively. So I'm <laughs> like the magnet of magnets. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think with with the family dynamics... Again, I feel like while nothing was a direct extension of me and anybody, it was all inspired from something and it was all kind of came from somewhere. So I think it was just pieces of things that I felt um, or things that I experienced in some way, shape or form that kind of like appeared in the novel in the way that it did. So, yeah, it was drawn in a way personally, but in more of like uh, not in like a direct parallel kind of way. Um, and then as for Valerie and her grandma, I think grandparent relationships were always very like fascinating to me because I didn't grow up with my grandparents. Um, my dad's dad, so my grandpa, paternal grandfather passed away before I was born. And then my dad's mom passed away when I was quite young. And then my mom's parents both lived in Korea. So I was very, very far from them. Um, but then one year, I think during university, I actually went to go study abroad in Seoul and I spent every weekend, every weekend I would go and visit my grandparents. I would like take the bus out of Seoul and like go visit them at their house. And, you know, I w- it wasn't because I was trying to be like dutiful or good or anything. I was just so curious about what is it like to have grandparents? Like I want grandparents. Like I want that relationship. What's it like? And I think because I grew up with a lot of friends who were like, well, I'm going to go visit my grandma this weekend. Or like, oh, like I'm going to be with my grandparents. And I was like, oh, like that's interesting and something that I don't have. So during this time, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and that was really interesting. And I think such a special time period. Um, I think it was just very special to me because the year after my grandpa actually ended up passing away. And then just a few months ago, my grandma passed away as well. So now I have no grandparents. And I think that's, that has always felt Sad. I think that will always feel a little bit sad to me because it's such a cool bond that you can have. And I really wanted to show that between Valerie and her grandma, that it can be a really special bond. So in a way, it was like, this is a, what I've always wanted for myself. But I think it's also what a lot of people have. And that's really special. Yeah. Yeah, like with... um like what I've noticed is it doesn't seem like any of your uh, characters like Wes and Valerie, they they don't seem to have like a language barrier uh, in terms of like communication uh, with their parents. So I, I just want to like clear that up. Are they fluent in, in Korean or are they like speaking in in English? Yeah, I guess I never I realized I like never really specifically said whether when they're talking to their parents whether it's like in Korean or English. Um, in my mind, I will say that they are like fluent in Korean um, and that they can speak Korean. And I imagine them kind of using like a mix of like Korean and English when they're speaking. 
So that's kind of like how I pictured it. Though I realized on the page, obviously it's not all in English. <laughs> But yes, in my head, they they are fluent in Korean um, as you know as much as they can be. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, it's that. not like you can write the book in like Romanization for all the Korean. <laughs> like, if that happened, I don't think anybody would would be able to like get through those dialogue scenes. It would be a bit of a challenge for sure. We'll have yeah, yeah, Google Translate queued up. Google Translate is amateur. You have to use Papago because that's the superior translation app. Like neighbor dictionary. (laughs) No, I totally get that too. I mean, my grandparents growing up were, they they lived in Taiwan, so I would see them summers only and like every, becoming an adult, like maybe like one or two weeks a year. And my my last grandparent passed away too a couple of years ago. So. I totally get that, like, kind of feeling like you've turned a corner in your life where it's like, okay, now now we're at a point where people are leaving more and more. Mm. And, yeah. Mm. One thing that I really enjoyed and do enjoy when I read, you know, own voices, like, Asian stories is, like, the, I don't want to call it inside jokes, but, like, the insider knowledge that, like, kind of, like, the shared cultural touch points that we that we have. And I really love that in the first page, you invoke haichus, which is something that, I'm sure a lot of people know what they are, but like Asians have an intimate like relationship with because those are, those are our starbursts, right? <laughs> those are our starbursts. <laughs> wow, I've never heard it described that way, but that's such a perfect description. <laughs> are you a, are you a big haichu fan? Oh yeah, I love haichus, and um, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'm a big fan of haichus. I ate them a lot while writing this book, which I think influenced. The fact that they like permeated into the story and kind of like took it over. Um, but yeah, I, I love them. I think they're great. I know that there is also actually a Korean version called Maiju. Um, I don't know if you know about this. I have never heard about this, but yes. I know that Koreans have like a lot of knockoff snacks from Japan and yes. they never taste the same. So. They, yeah, so there's Maiju, which is yeah, the Korean version, basically Haichu's. Um, they, those are pretty good too. I would say they're like quite good. But Haichu is just, I think, more easily accessible, you know, in the big giant bags <laughs> at the grocery store. What's your favorite flavor? I love the pineapple. I also love the strawberry. Recently, the watermelon has been wow. kind of like my favorite. It's kind of taken over the other ones, which is interesting. There's a flavor that I tried once and I've never seen again. And it's like the Asian pudding flavor of Haichu. And I have no That's... idea. Maybe it's a, it was a seasonal thing, but I, I've never seen it ever again, ever, ever since like getting it that oh one time. Oh my Lord. That is like a shiny Pokemon of Haichu. <laughs> oh my God. I will never rest now until I see that in my life. Just have to like go on eBay and see if like anybody is selling it for oh for like a fucking God. fortune. I know. I just have to like go to go to Japan to like sell that one down. <laughs> I mean, that's something that like we we do, right? When we ever when we go to like Asia for our trips, we like smuggle oh, back like mean, all the seasonal oh, snacks. You mean the snack suitcase? Because the snack suitcase is <laughs> so true. Yeah, and whenever I go to Asia, I always come back with like bags and bags of snacks, and then I'll go to TNT here and find them here, and I'll be like, "Well, that was kind of a waste of luggage," but it's okay. It's the memories, memories of it coming from coming yeah. from Asia. I think it's just our um, our cultural memory of like not having those accessible, not having them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, growing yes, up, so we have to like true. bring as many back as possible. And it's the worst because I would bring back like a bag of seaweed chips because they don't have that flavor here. 
And then I wouldn't open it for a year because I don't want to like waste it, right? Oh my gosh. This precious commodity. (laughs) I like when I went to Korea, I brought an extra suitcase just for skincare products because I was like, uh, shipping fee is terrible. And if I buy stuff here, I can get tax off because I'm a tourist. So yeah, like I brought like a whole bunch of skincare stuff uh, in my suitcase. Um, if I was a high schooler, maybe I would have sold it at school. It's Who knows? Smart. It's what Valerie would do. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the romance. Um, so from the premise, readers may immediately think that the romance is like an enemies to lovers story because you mm-hmm. have these two characters who are competing against each other in in business. But that's not really that's not quite the relationship that mm-hmm. Valerie and Wes have. Like. Uh, Valerie is very fierce and competitive, but Wes is a Wes is a sweet boy. He's a cinnamon roll. Uh, so, how did you plan out the trajectory of their romance and like the chemistry between them? Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I think I've also caught myself saying like, "Oh, it's like enemies to lovers." Like that's a trope that's used. But yeah, to be very honest, it's more like business rivals to lovers. I would say like they never really quite hate each other. Like they don't hate each other's guts or anything. And yeah, Wes is a, I don't know if Wes hates anybody. (laughs) Maybe himself at certain points as he's like navigating through his self-esteem. But um, I think that with their romance, actually, I will say that when I first, first, first started planning this book, it was not a romance. It was a, it was just like a business, family, contemporary um and you know Wes and Valerie still competed but at the end it was just like mutual understanding (laughs) and I shared this with my CPs and they're like so they're just like not gonna kiss at the end they're just like not they're just gonna like shake hands or something and I was like um I don't know like I guess I never really thought about it but I think as I was writing it um I started to feel like they wanted to be together and that was kind of like an interesting like the characters kind of showing me the way thing where they were like well we want to be together though and like well, why don't you just put us together it's like everything is like set up for us to be together and I was like well I mean I guess so if I'm the only thing standing in the way of this teenage romance then I guess I should just let it happen so that was kind of what happened and then they they kind of unfolded from there so I will say that it originally began, I think, as more of like a family-centered story. So probably in parts, I think it might come across as as more of that. And I think I have heard that like, you know, for a rom-com, um, the romance is like there, but I would say that it's not always like the main thing. And I think if any, if that, if it ever feels that way, that is the reason why. But I will say I'm very glad that I kind of stepped aside and let them have their romance because it's very sweet. I think it's very cute. And I think it's very, uh, very, very, you know, I just like to see them happy. And so if that makes them happy, I'm here for it. <laughs> that process sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I like I I really like the fact that even though even though this book is a romance it it really is uh Valerie and Wes learning from each other because mm-hmm. Valerie teaches Wes to like you know speak up and don't say yes to everything and uh with with uh Valerie Wes teaches her like not everyone is just a customer or a non-customer you need to let people in so it's it's a romance, but it's very much like a friendship story. And I am 
all for that. Reluctant, <laughs> reluctant <laughs> rivals to reluctant friends to lovers. I right. think that is like a very good description of this book. Yes, I love it. I love that too. Yeah. I, I take that description wholeheartedly. <laughs> so we're towards the end of our interview, but I do have uh, a lightning round of questions I'd oh, like to okay. ask you. So uh, just answer whatever uh, comes to mind as fast as you can. So. Okay. All right. So what is your favorite pingsu flavor? Uh, Injami. <laughs> Which what is Korean's... like, oh, sorry, yeah, I, should right explain, I should explain what that is. It's like, oh my God, it's one of those Korean things that I can't explain in English though. But it's like a powdered soy. Yeah, I would it, say it's soy. Yeah, it tastes delicious. Look it up on Google. <laughs> All right. Second question. What Korean songs are on your heavy rotation? Um, I would say right now, anything by Mama Moo, who I love. And right now, I use new album. And obviously, also anything by BTS. All right. Enemies to lovers, friends to lovers, or fake dating? Ah, how do I choose? Uh, can I say all of them? I'll just say all of them. Okay. Uh, K-pop bias. K-pop bias. Uh, so I guess, like I said before, Mamamoo, who's a girl group, they're my favorite K-pop group of all time at the moment. So I would choose them. Uh, who's your bias out of uh, Mamamoo? Uh, out of them, I love all of them. They're so great and funny. But if I had to choose one, probably Hwasa. Uh, I love her solo music too. All right. Jajangmyeon or Jampong? Oh my god, I always get um, Jamjamyeon, which is like half... Jajangmyeon, half jampong. It's like, you know, it's like one bowl, but like half of it is one thing, half of it is the other, and there's like a divider in the middle. So I'm cheating with all these answers. You, you so are cheating. <laughs> I, will, I will say that they've created this new thing where it's like three parts. So it's like what? jajangmyeon, jampong, and fried rice in like My one My God, bowl. that's it genius. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it's genius. genius. All right, next question. If you could travel anywhere right now, where would you go? Oh, I would go to... I would go to Busan because that's where I've been really wanting to go these days. Uh, the most recent K-drama you've watched? The most recent was Romance is a Bonus Book, which is quite old, but I was catching up. It's on Netflix, everyone. Yes. Right. For Tangsuyuk, do you dip or pour? It depends on the company that I am with. But <laughs> if I am by myself, <laughs> if I am by myself, I will dip so that I can get the right amount of sauce on each bite. That's funny that like you change it depending yes. on company. Yeah, you I mean, wanna, I don't, I don't want to offend them. No, no, I'm so Asian in that way. But I also don't have strong feelings about it. But so it's like, you know, if you want to pour it, you can pour it. But if it's just me and I'm eating like a huge plate of it, yeah, I'll just dip it. All right. So what is your current read? Um, my current read is, oh, what have I just read recently? I just finished The Silence of Bones by June Her, which is a Korean historical murder mystery, and I really enjoyed that. And I have a huge list of books to read afterwards, so probably one of those. <laughs> All right, so this is the final question, and uh, it might take you some time, but, okay. but go right ahead. Uh, who would you cast to play Valerie and Wes? Oh, like if they were in a movie? Yeah, if they were I in guess? a movie or a K-drama or whatever. Oh my god. Well, well, I think it's tricky because a lot of the actors, if they were in a K-drama, if there was like a Korean adaptation, a lot of actors I like are a lot older. 
and like not teenagers. So I think my honest answer to this is I would want actual Korean teenagers to play Valerie and West. So I, it's okay to me. It's almost even preferable if they're like not really super famous right now. And this is kind of like their foray into movie land. Um, so yeah, just any Korean teenager that is talented. <laughs> you know, it's important to have those shows that create stars for us, like the next generation. Yes. Yes, I would love it if this ever turned into anything. I would love it if it was like, oh, yeah, I got my start with Made in Korea. Like, that would be so cool. I'd love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, um, Sarah, for joining us on Books and Bobo. It was such a great, it's been such a great time talking to you. And yeah, good luck on your book tour. Um, we're still under COVID time, so it's going to be a little different than pro- probably what you were expecting. But, um, you know, the book is amazing and we're super happy that it's out there or it's going to be out there. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was so great to be here. And where can our listeners find you? Uh, You can find me at my website, sarahsook.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at Sarah Hedy Sook, which is spelled S-A-R-A-H-A-E-L-I-S-U-K. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, have a great book launch. Thank you. And that was our interview with Sarah Suk, uh, the author of Made in Korea. Made in Korea is coming out next week on Tuesday, May 18th. So if you haven't pre-ordered yet, um, you can get it at bookstores everywhere on that date. Be safe while shopping, though. We're still kind of in pandemic conditions. I mean, online shopping exists. That's true. <laughs> IndieBound indie exists. Bookshop.org exists. <laughs> yeah, speaking of bookshops, don't forget to check out our bookshop.org website where you can find book lists painfully curated by Rira um, featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors, including many of our book club picks, as well as support our podcast. Yeah, so 10% will go to uh, bookstores nationwide and 10% will go into this podcast so that we can continue to feature uh, books by Asian and Asian diaspora authors. Check out our bookshop by going to the website bookshop.org slash shop slash books and boba. And don't forget our May 2021 Books and Boba book club pick is The Silence of Bones by Jane Herr. We hope that you've been keeping up with your reading and we can't wait to discuss this mystery story with you at the end of the month. Yeah, and that will do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Um, hope everyone's Asian Pacific American Heritage Month is going well. Um, thanks for listening and we'll see you all next time. All right. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Rayu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. 
We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.